pages here we gotta get through. This is, I didn't realize how long this script was. <laughs> wow. So, uh, and I've got, uh, I'm seeing a movie at noon. So, do you think we can do this in under two hours? I think so. Well, you already bought your seat, so you don't have to go to like 11.40. Yeah, I, I'm meeting a friend there, so I gotta be there at like quarter two. But, uh, uh yeah. Well, I heard the it's... Eternal stinks anyway. Well, here's the thing about Rotten Tomatoes. First of all, it's a it's an MCU movie, okay? I'm gonna like it regardless. You're like I'm Kevin gonna find Smith. stuff in there I, I like regardless. I'm just being honest. I know. When I was a kid, this is what I dreamed of, that this would happen one day. And now it's happening all the time, and I love it. <laughs> so I, I'm just grateful that this stuff, that these movies are being made. So bad reviews, usually I, I follow the critics, not for a Marvel movie. I'm just going to go see for myself. Um, and, and there will be, regardless of the quality overall, there will be stuff in there that I've liked. Second of all, with Rotten Tomatoes, you got to be careful. Because those film aggregators, they just tell you if it's a bad review or a good review. No, I It'll know, tell you but... how many of those good reviews were five stars and how many of those bad reviews were like two and a half stars. Do you see I what know. I mean? Yeah. So you got to be careful with that because it doesn't always give you the exact perception of things. Also, the fan score is a lot higher than the critical score. So going with that. Plus, That's, that's because a lot of the, the people Marvel... Who I, the people who I've talked to who saw it all liked it, so... That's because all the Marvel fans, are, it's like Kevin Smith, they're just like, I'm going to like it regardless. It's Marvel. It's like you overlook some like glaring plot holes or something terrible. I also it's like Star Wars fans. But Actually, no, Mar but Mar Star Marvel Wars fans, fans Marvel back. fans can be brutal, though. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, like I've heard people call Civil War fine. Fuck you! It's call awesome! What? Call what fine? I miss it. Civil out. War. Oh. oh, fuck that. Civil War is amazing. <laughs> It's far more than fine. <laughs> Fucking dinks. There you go. So, you know, Marvel nerds can be brutal. Yeah. All right. And also, the movie was getting, uh, uh, they call it review bombed, where special interest groups will just send in negative reviews because they don't like something. And it's because it's got a gay character. So they're all mad. Oh, Marvel trying to push the gay agenda. Negative review. Yeah. Which, nerds can be really racist and homophobic. Well, yeah, it's nerds because... Are, nerds yeah. are awful. Well, it's because nerds, you know, I mean, the term is more common now, but like you've, you've, you've heard the word incel, right? Yes. I think, like, you know, there's always been incels before the term was kind of, like, in the lexicon. So you get these... The nice way to put it was used to be neckbeard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you get these fat loners who just, like... I mean, I'm fat, but... Uh, Captain Sweatpants. Yeah, exactly. And he's just like, who have nothing better to do. They feel like the world slighted them because they can't get a bloody date. So they got to take it out on whatever. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. Hey, you know who aren't these horrible nerds? And they actually seem to be wonderful people. And you know, I bet you, Brian, they wouldn't have worn sweatpants a day in their life. I bet you Jeff Martin goes to the gym in tight leather pants. <laughs> tight black Ta jeans and Doc Martens. That's right. I'm talking about the tea party. This week's topic of discussion on Canada FM. And um, I was, uh, it was a journey this week. 
lot of different stuff. A lot of stuff I didn't ex- expect. Yeah. But uh, I'm glad we went through it. And, you know, Ted, um, you know you were worried about how to get through all these pages? Yeah. I'm going to be up front with you. I'm not going to have a lot of hot takes this week because it was just very enjoyable. I, I'm not, I wasn't like looking for all sorts of like, oh, this sounds like this or that. I'm just like, I was actually surprised. As I how, have a hot how, take or two. How talented it was. Like, I'm not going to like do some <laughs> deep dive album breakdowns like we usually do just because I'm like, I enjoyed most of it. So Yeah, no, I'm, I'm the same way. Uh, but I, I do have a couple of, couple of hot takes peppered in here. Right. I think the biggest mystery for me is... This is one band where I am kind of stumped as yeah, to why same. American I was thinking audiences about that didn't the whole catch time. on. Yeah. Especially when they're from Windsor, which, you know, the nickname for Windsor is South Detroit. Yeah. You know, it's 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 one of the most American cities in Canada. Uh well, little surprise it didn't break in. Not only that, before 9-11, like I watched this documentary on YouTube about the border relations of Windsor and Detroit. Yeah, it was early in the morning and I didn't sleep well, so I just found it on YouTube. But because uh, living in Windsor for four years, like there was a lot of DJs and artists that would freely go over the border, just back and forth, and like the they got to know the border guards, and they just be like wave them through. Like the guy could have smuggled drugs into the country and they wouldn't have even known because they know him so well. You know what I mean? Like there was this DJ named Richie Hot, and he talked. He had a PO box over the border in Detroit where he'd like get mail and stuff and just. Free. And, then, and then after 9-11, walls came up and it became so much harder to be a musician in Windsor. Well, one of my former uh, kind of program directors, guy I worked for, he used to work for a station that was Detroit slash Windsor. Yeah. So they'd pull ratings from both markets and market themselves as like, ah, you know, we're in two countries, you know. And uh, he'd going through you do a day in windsor and a day in detroit you go back and forth all the time well that was like a big a big thing the our campus our campus station c jam like our our tag was like it's windsor and detroit like what was i forget what it was called it was like changing or whatever something something windsor and detroit like serving windsor and detroit since for like 30 years and uh, like we got listeners in the states, there was a guy who was a volunteer who would come over the border every uh, once a week to do his show, <laughs> just just to do his show. That's how that's how great the musical relation was between the two cities. Well, I haven't been to Windsor in a very long time, and I know you. Well, you know, let me just kind of set the stage here. The right. story of the Tea Party takes us back to the late '80s in Windsor. That's where it all began for these guys. Just kind of sell us on Windsor, because you lived there, what, three years? Four. Four years. You lived 2012 there to 2016. And yeah. to be perfectly well, honest, Windsor does have some things going for it, because it's different from like a city like Guelph or Hamilton, obviously, because there's mm-hmm. so much going on, and it's so close to Toronto and all these things. Windsor is like two hours away from London. I'm like, yes, it's right over the border from Detroit, but... You know, some people might not like going in the States, especially now with like, well, now the border's been opened, but only for vaccinated people. But before, for the last year and a half, you couldn't go over the border, right? Right. Um, so Windsor is just literally this lump at the end of the highways. Literally, I tell people, like, take the 401 until it says you can't until you hit the water. Um And so they really had to carve out their own scene. So there is a couple of really good spots for shows obviously there's the hotel and the casino so you get like comedy acts and like 
the the Twilight Years acts. And yeah. I, I think the hip played there actually once. Um, and Great well, Big like C and stuff. Yeah. Oh, cool. Okay, that doesn't seem like a the tragically hip spot, but yeah. Well, it's because I think during the fully completely tour, they were kind of hitting every spot, and so they obviously that was the one that could hold them was the casino. So that's a good point. Yeah. Um, and I I think. I think Sean saw Tom Segura there, the comedian and stuff. So it gets oh, okay. a lot of big names. and yeah. uh, But then there's a couple small clubs that um, really have carved out like a good spot. And all the bands are so supportive of each other because it's like they really had to carve out their own scene. And because it's, it's a small, big city, if that makes sense. Because it's like a couple hundred thousand people, I think, a hundred yeah. and something. But it's like people who grew up there like it's very incestuous like a lot of friend groups all dated each other i'm sure oh, like sure. bands yeah. probably well, Thunder like, Bay's like that so i know bands exactly probably what you're dated describing. each other or like members in different bands probably yeah, dated each yeah, other yeah. it's like those art artsy scenes so it's it's it, be careful about shitting where you eat if you get if you get involved <laughs> in that windsor scene but uh and it's got some good food. The food culture's growing there. Last time I was there. And uh, so it does have a lot going for it. What it doesn't have is like industry is really, it's one of the first cities that'll take a hit if when industry shuts down, because it's really the, aside from college, like the two colleges there, the U and the St. Clair, uh, and obviously, like, you know, banking, police, that stuff. Like there's four or five factories, like the Weiser plant, Chrysler plant that really make up the bulk of employment there, and if those go under, that's when. Weiser. Yeah, they had a Weiser's whiskey. Yeah, they had a Weiser plant. If if you if you go like east down uh, Riverside Drive, you can start smelling the hops. (laughs) Thanks, McLovin. (laughs) So yeah, all in all, and like it's, and it's not bad because you know it's it's a stone throw to Detroit, like where we got to see slightly stupid that one yeah. time and like the tigers games lions games so i mean you don't feel the need to always have to go to toronto whereas like hamilton has it a lot but then it, toronto's so close that it's like oh, i'll just go there you know what i mean yeah we always kind of forfeit having to go to jay's games or whatever whereas they can kind of still stay in their backyard if they want to yeah so. and that's the other thing is too like you mentioned about windsor gets a bad rap i think detroit also gets a bad rap because uh me and Bran went once with some friends of hers who are mm. from Detroit, and they took us around to, like, the Greek area and all these places I didn't know about. Yeah. It was really nice. And no one oh, talks yeah. about that when they talk about Detroit. They talk about all the, you know, the rundown areas. They yeah. don't talk about the really nice spots. And there are a lot of really nice spots. I think any major city you go to, there's going to be nice spots that people choose to ignore. Well, like, how, how many years in the 90s did we hear growing up, Hamilton's a dump? It's because when people would come oh, from yeah. like Buffalo or whatever, or come from Toronto, they would come around the QE. So all they would see is the the factories and the rough strings. Yeah. And, and then like, because the amount of people I knew who lived in Toronto or like the Mississauga GTA, then all of a sudden they now live in Hamilton. They're eating their words. Oh, I know. And it was brutal when I first went to college and I, I, I realized, you know, not everyone here thinks too highly of Hamilton. The line everyone used was, it's, it's the armpit of Canada. Yeah. You get that. Bastards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, ragging on the Ticats. You know, they won last bastards. night. Yeah. Or so on Friday the night. Yep. There we go. Who are they starting? Is it Evans that they're starting a quarterback right now? Or are they uh, going with... Uh, Masoli's back. So he's Masoli's been, back, okay. But they're kind of doing this weird split where like they'll bring in... Evans for like a random like quick short run play like a quarterback sneak and then give yeah. Masoli a breather and then bring him back. 
Okay. So they're utilizing it. Yeah. All right. Well, there you go. There's a little history lesson on Windsor and a bunch of other underrated cities in uh, (laughs) Canada and the U.S. Well, singer and guitarist Jeff Martin, bassist and keyboardist Stuart Chatwood, and drummer Jeff Burroughs all attended Sandwich Secondary School. Cue uh, Captain Sandwich! Right there. (laughs) Do you remember Uh, when I first told you the first student house I lived at was on Sandwich? You laughed over the phone for literally five minutes. Just to fill in why everyone's talking about, there was an episode of King of Queens where Doug wanted to buy a boat and Carrie got really mad at him and called him Captain Sandwich. <laughs> and I thought it was the funniest line ever. And I think I just watched that. And Brian's like, yeah, you can come pick me up on Sandwich Street. And I thought that was really It's funny. because that's the, the that west end of the city where she, I lived and my roommate at the time, Sean, uh, where we lived. Sandwich Street was like Windsor first. And then because that was like the village of Sandwich was like dates back to like the 1700s. Yeah. And then eventually they just developed Windsor eastward. But that was the initial. And you can see it when you look at some of the buildings and the old courthouse and stuff. It's like really old. It's cool. Now, is it uh, called Sandwich after like somebody like the Earl of Sandwich or is it called Sandwich because it's sandwiched in there between Windsor and Detroit? I mean, that's a that's a good thing. I never actually looked that up. I'll, I'll double check that and get back to you. All right, but while Jeff Stewart and Jeff were attending Sandwich School, uh, <laughs> sounds like where you graduate from a little yeah, door Subway. And Subway. <laughs> no, sandwich Secondary School. Uh, they weren't in a band together. They all played in different bands, but they never played together. They wouldn't play together until the year 1990, when they were fully adults. They just found each other in Toronto hooked up for what they called a marathon jam session at Toronto's Cherry Beach Rehearsal Studio. And they just thought this was meant to be, basically. And they decided to form a band, and they called their band the Tea Party as a tribute to the hash-smoking sessions that beatnik poets Allen Ginsberg, Jack Kerouac, and William Burroughs used to have. So that might be where they got some of their trippy influences from. On those first two albums. Yeah, yeah. Now, here's how accomplished these three are, okay? We'll start with Jeff Martin. Jeff Martin studied music at the University of Windsor, and it was proven on, I believe it was Daily Planet, that TV show, that Jeff Martin has perfect pitch. Yeah. That's something everybody has. He has perfect pitch. Uh, Burroughs, his father was a touring drummer for Canadian crooner Bobby Curtola in the 1960s. And he was also a session drummer with Motown Records. Oh, that's so cool. it's in his blood playing the drums. And if you listen to these albums... Oh, yeah, he's a great dude's drummer. He's a, a hell of a drummer. Um, and then finally you got Chowood. And when he's not touring with the Tea Party, what he does is he composes music for video games. He's done the Road Rash series... NHL 2002, Darkest Dungeon, and eight Prince of Persia games. Oh, wow. Yeah. And those, they made a Jake Gyllenhaal movie about those games. So it's <laughs> pretty well I wonder well if they regarded. brought him in for like to score the movie or consult on the score. Maybe I not. have no idea. I, I should have looked that up. Well, yeah. it's, it's interesting. There you go. Well, um... One year after they formed, 1991, they released their self-titled album. And I'm not going to lie, it's pretty rare. 
and I couldn't find a copy of this anywhere. So yeah, I didn't me get to listen to it. I yeah. went I went straight into the '93 album. Yeah, me too. Well, because this '91 album, only 3,500 copies were made, uh, but it became a popular bootleg on cassette tape. People would get it. They'd be like, "Oh man, this is cool!" And then they tape it off of the tape, and then that friend would tape it off of the tape. Um, and by the end of the telephone line, you'd just be getting this garble garbled mess on yeah. cassette tape uh but it grew the fan base and uh, the demand was out there uh for more tea party music but apparently uh that album was a lot different very lo-fi and very quiet um because i think they got someone else to produce it so after that album jeff martin stepped in and he was like okay i'm gonna produce all of our stuff from yeah. on. yeah and that's exactly what he did in the 1993 release splendid spoils their first major record release where they signed on with EMI Music, who produced, I think, all but their most recent full-length album. They, they were, they've been with EMI Music for a very long time. And uh, that 1993 release would be their first album to uh, deploy their signature sound of combining Western music with Middle Eastern music, something that has been dubbed by the critics as more rock and roll. Now, did you ever Can find out, is, is Jeff Martin, like, does he have family that dates back to Morocco? Did he travel? Like, where does this Moroccan influence, this Middle Eastern stuff come from? From what I understand, they're kind of like the Beatles. They are pretty pasty white, but they just, they love the Middle East. Fair enough. They love the sounds. They love the culture. Probably the food. All that good stuff. So there, that's a lot, where a lot of those influences come from. And, and you, you can tell these guys, they like the beatnik poetry. You know, they love Zeppelin and the Doors and all of oh, the, yeah. the hip, the trippy stuff from the 60s. You know, Middle Eastern culture is huge in that. Yeah. You know, the Beatles weren't the only bands playing sitars back then. Yeah. So, you know, it kind of comes with the territory of the stuff that they were into. Fair enough. Yeah. Splendid Spoils did very well in Canada. It achieved double platinum status and reached number 20 on the album charts. The other place it did really well was Australia. So this isn't this is a kind of a break for Canada FM. It's just like with the Moffitts episode, how they did really well in Thailand. Yeah. The Tea Party are huge to this day in Australia. Well, did you see the last video I posted on our Instagram? Follow the Instagram Canada FM, uh, where he was on this show <laughs> called Rock Wiz with this okay. uh, this singer. Uh, what the hell was her name? It was uh, Tina. Uh, yeah, it was Tina Arena. She was like an Australian singer. They did okay. like they did a duet. They did Peter Gabriel's uh, Don't Give Up. Oh, cool. And, like, yeah, they, this show went on for, like, eight years, and he was on one of... Jeff Martin was on one of them. Oh, neat. Yeah. Well, they look... Yeah, minor celebrities down there. It's pretty <laughs> when cool. When they show up, it creates a minor stir. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they've actually done 12 tours in their career of Australia. And so... I was also... People come to expect... I was reading, didn't there. they do, like, some, like, just, like, orchestral-type tour in Australia? Or they probably did, like, Opera House or something? You, I, 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 you cut out of the first part of that. Oh, didn't they do like some like orchestral type tour? Oh yeah, yeah, they definitely did. Well, they did that across Canada too. Yeah. That's one of their things. So we'll get to that eventually okay. as the this goes along. But oh yeah, no, they did that down there too. Uh, three singles were released off of the Splendor Spoils. The kickoff track, "The River," charted uh, best, reaching number thirty-nine in the charts. <laughs> Then he had 
Save Me, which made it to number 49. And a certain slant of light topped out at number 77. should also note that music videos were filmed and aired on much music for In This Time and Midsummer Day, but neither of them charted or actually ever even got played on the radio. Just music videos mm. for much exclusively. So there you go, much. Good job. <laughs> uh, Save Me, I think, is a particularly interesting tune because uh, much like Jimmy Page, one of Jeff Martin's biggest influences, uh, he plays his guitar with a bow in that song. Yeah, I saw that. <laughs> yeah, well, it started with Jimmy Page. He was the first guy I ever knew to play his guitar with a bow. And then, yeah, Jeff Martin doing it, too. Uh, and then what also happened with that song was it's one of the big causes the Tea Party has um, is the White Ribbon Campaign, which is basically it's men against the abuse of women. Ah. Uh, very against spousal abuse, uh, as we should all be. Um, and yeah. uh, they, they shouldn't be the only. Afraid. They shouldn't be the only band taking up this cause. But <laughs> yeah, I hate to be that. Ah, yeah, we, you know, fans. Of, if you sing a song about how much you enjoy hitting women, you're scum. Well, do you remember that song? Um, oh, what the hell was it called? Shit. Ugh. It was all about, like, uh, it was like a pop punk song from, like, the early 2000s. It was all about, like, spousal abuse. And he's like, oh, yeah, the red jumpsuit apparatus. Right. Thank you. Face down. Do you feel like a man when you push her around? Yeah, Yeah, that's a good song. It was weird. I was driving in the car. This is, like, when I was still friends with Leah. Like, back, like, I think she was home from college for, like, a week or Christmas break or whatever. And I just made a random playlist and I threw it on on a mix CD. And she got, like, really taken back by that song. She's like, can you please change it? And I was like, what's wrong? And she's like, I don't know if maybe someone hit her or something. I don't know. She never went. She just got really, like, like a cat in a corner about that song. Well, you know, the topic is. Yeah, sure. while, While the spirit of the song is good. Yeah. You know, good intentions can only go so far. Sometimes even just bringing up the subject can yeah, that's fair. people. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the success of Splendor Spoils would earn the Tea Party a pair of Juno nominations in 1994. They'd face off with Sloan for Best New Group, uh, but they would lose to the Waltons. And we covered that in the Sloan episode. Waltons have a really good song called It Really Beats the Hell Out of Me. If you can find that and play it right here. It really beats the hell out of me, why? And then they'd lose Hard Rock Album of the Year to I Mother Earth and their debut album, Dig. So, you know, they're on the bo- they're on the map though, which is a good thing. Uh what were your thoughts on Splendor Spoils? Like, I knew full well that I had missed the first album, but like yeah. never I was so taken back by how finished their sound was. You know, like like, yeah, sure. like Sloan 
really it took like a couple albums to really fall into that like quote unquote Sloan song or Sloan album or Sloan sound that we talked about whereas like this it's like pretty much straight from the jump they just whipped it out and they just like ran with this formula that worked and it was testament to their musicianship and big time and they're very despite the fact that they're probably in their early to mid 20s by this point I don't know but uh mature lyrics you know they weren't uh they definitely weren't these just like waning kind of like I got dumped and it really sucks you well, know <laughs> let me ask you this was because we just came off doing a gob episode yeah where we listened to gob's entire discography did you find the transition tough because I did no, because I knew what I was getting into with the Tea Party. Like, I didn't know to the extent of how talented they actually were, because I really only knew the singles. Like, my brother was a big Tea Party fan, but I never mm-hmm. bored his albums. Okay. Uh, so I never actually knew anything outside of what we saw in Much Music or, like, Edge 102. Okay. Well, as, as far as I go with the album, I, th- I agree with you completely. The musicianship and the songwriting are fantastic. Uh, Jeff Burroughs is... Maybe next to Neil Peart, the greatest Canadian drummer of all time. Like, that's what stood out for me right away. I was like, holy shit, the drumming on here is insane. That guy can bang, bang on those sticks and skins. <laughs> um, you know, the six, the psychedelic sounds of the 60s were groovy. I'm going to recommend anybody who's going to check this album out. Do not just have this on as background noise. Yeah, you definitely. That, that was my mistake is I listened to a lot of these albums at the gym like when I was doing my physiotherapy and uh, so I was like more focused. I, I was listening to it, but I wasn't so dialed in as I should have been. I should yeah. have been sitting on my couch with headphones listening like yeah. intently. But yeah. and, and I, I think having said that, cause I listened to it when I was at work, which, you know, I shouldn't admit to, but I did. <laughs> um, and obviously having like, it ticked all the boxes for me. Except really kind of like for personal taste. Like, I don't know if Splendor uh, Spoils would be something I'd go back to. Yeah. It's, because it's not, I wrote, it's not really something I'm wired for. Well, I mean, we spent 20-odd years listening to, like, the goofy shenanigans of punk and ska. And then to, like, <laughs> to go back to something so, like, first of all, like, industrial and, like, the hard rock stuff never really registered with us too too much i mean like i had my new metal phase i had you know we both did but like it's never something that's like and obviously this is much more advanced than new metal i'm not taking anything away from the tea party but just that really heavy stuff never really stuck with us what did you have for deep cuts i liked sun going down and raven skies i thought those were those were my favorite deep cuts yeah i i loved raven skies i was gonna say that um, I like uh, I like Winter Solstice. Okay, that was like the acoustic one, right? Yeah, like the acoustic, like, kind of like was what it? What's the Zeppelin one? Is it? I was Black- thinking that Black Mountainside. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's what that. reminded they, me. They of. do that a couple of times throughout this discography. There's one on one of their more recent ones that really felt like that too. But yeah, uh, yeah I really like that one. If you are a Zeppelin fan. You'll like listen this. to this album, yeah. or listen to just listen to the Tea Party, because yeah. they they've really caught on with uh, the trippiness of Zeppelin. You know, you get these, you get bands every once in a while, like like Wolf Mother or Greta Van Fleet, 
Yeah, they're doing they're doing they're, a rip. they're doing almost a commercialized version of Zeppelin. Yeah. Without the heart of Zeppelin. Yeah. The Tea Party, especially in the early days, had the full Zeppelin experience, but it was unique to them. And also their uh their singer doesn't sound like Baby being hit with bagpipe. <laughs> I, 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 I like Wolfmother and Greta Van Fleet. It's just so screechy. <laughs> Robert Plant can be screechy. I know, and that's why I'm like, that's why I never, I go back to listening to The Who more than Zeppelin. When I, whenever, I feel right? like, whenever I feel like 60s stuff, I go back to The Who more, yeah. I don't know what oh, it is. Boy. Everyone zigs Our, left, Brian goes right. Can I tell you, well, I, I think, here's a Zeppelin story, okay? And it's maybe why this is like the one Zeppelin song I don't like that much. Do you know the song like Going to California? It's kind of a slower ballad. No. He's talking about going to California. That's a bit of a At slow First I ballad. thought you were talking about that uh, that one pop band. Going to California. Oh, yeah, Wave? <laughs> yeah. No, not Wave. So so we had it on like uh, like a satellite radio rock station where I worked at Boston Pizza. And our kitchen manager, he, he was a big punk and ska guy. He used to wear a real big fish hoodie into work and stuff like that. So he was into that. And Going to California came on after a bunch of really like high energy songs. Yeah. And he was 22 at the time. I think I was like 18 at the time. We didn't know it was Zeppelin. So we're kind of bitching about it because it's like killing our mood and stuff like that. And he turns to one of the servers. And this server was an older guy, too. And big, classic rock guy. And he looks at him and goes, hey, man, can you change it? Can you give us something more upbeat? And he goes, you don't like this? And he goes, it sucks. The server goes, never heard someone say that about the Zeppelin before. And he walked away. Didn't change it. Wow. Uh I think one of the reasons why I, uh, I don't feel the need to go back to Zeppelin is because friggin' Dan and Dev ruined it for us. Oh, when they play the ocean all the time. Just so to, to, for a little bit of background, our roommates Dan Krawcheck, Krawchuk and Devin Prince Reed played guitar and bass. They were excellent musicians. Oh, phenomenal. And they had the drummer was Cody Mackey. And it, they would set up in our living room. Me and Brian would be in the basement. And they would jam the ocean by Led Zeppelin. For hours on end. Brian, get a little bit of the ocean here, just so people know what we heard all day, every day. <laughs> yeah, you hear it in your sleep. Yeah, and it's a, yeah, it's a great song. They didn't while we were sleeping or anything like it's that. It's a great song. Yeah, there was, do you remember that one time where they uh, they had that annoying bitch that come over? <laughs> uh, yes, and, Pam. Yeah, Pam. And uh, she was, like, we were trying to sleep. I think we both had early labs or something the next day. And, like, they're, and you just pounded on. We didn't have early labs. We were in your room watching Ebert and Roper. No, there was, okay. We wanted to hear Ebert and Roper. (laughs) Okay, there was two two different times. Because there was one time where we were both laying down. And you came out of your room and you just pounded on the ceiling. You went, hey, shut the fuck up. And then she was like. (laughs) And then there was another time where you were just like, hey. Shut it! Yeah, but well, guess what they did? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, because what happened was it wasn't matter about her being loud. She got on the kit. Oh yeah, and, and she knew how to play drums. Yeah. So that's going to be annoying for someone who does know how to play drums. Just hearing someone going. Yeah. Oh yeah, there's nothing the worse. Kit. There's nothing more of a party foul than like. I mean, it's one thing if you're jamming with friends and you're just like, hey, let me switch it up and just try the kit. Like, we did that when we jammed with Brent all the time. We would all alternate. You guys let me yeah. play on the drums, get away from the guitar for five seconds, yeah, just yeah, fiddle. But here's the, that, that's the difference. You can bang around the drums if you don't know what you're doing. You can't really get on a guitar 
if you don't know what you're doing. But also, the difference is I can actually keep a beat on the drums. I can actually keep yeah. a basic beat. Pam could not. No, no. And it was very late at night. And <laughs> we wanted to hear what Ebert Roper thought of. Oh, they have a crappy movie from that time. Yeah. Um, you know, I got nothing. Do you remember? <laughs> although we were, do, do you remember the time when we were watching game four of the uh, 2005 World Series and we were going nuts? And we're like, ah, and then Adam's just like, hey, shut the fuck up down there. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah, we were having a good time. Yeah. No, I remember I got yelled at to shut the fuck up because uh, we were upstairs with them drinking and we all decided to go to bed. And I went to my room and I saw that uh, Chris Penn had died. And so I'm Brian, Chris Penn died. <laughs> and you're like, what? Chris Penn died. And then I got to shut the fuck up from upstairs. Yeah. <laughs> nice guy, Eddie. Although, speaking of baseball, what are your thoughts on the stupid Braves? Uh, I was rooting for them. Yeah. I was rooting for them the whole time. Well, uh, okay, look at... The, uh, first of all, uh, where I work, we do baseball predictions every year, and I predicted at the beginning of the year the Braves would win the World Series. You should so, put a C-note on it. Pat, um, the back right there. I predicted, the, I predicted they'd beat the White Sox, they'd beat the Astros, but still. Um, you sh- you should have... Uh, who what, I was going to vote for Houston? I was going to root for the Red Sox? No. Yeah, I know. I know. I was going to root for the Dodgers? No. They had all won recently. Give me some care. new blood. And they won. I care. I don't Unless want Jake it's... to be happy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. Also, I love Jake. But... Also, I'd be, I've, I've grown an affinity for Freddie Freeman. I love Freddie Freeman. And every time I watch the game with Freddie, my baby, I go, hey, Freddie, you're up to bat. Hey, look at that. That's what I do. I don't. Every time he hit a home run, I'll be like, hey, you hit a home run, even though he didn't do anything. I do, even though he has no allegiance to playing for Canada, I do respect him for playing because of that story, because of his mom. That was a nice story. His mom and dad. In fact, his dad, where's his dad from? Windsor. There you go. Just like the tea party. Cycle back. We sometimes get off track, but we find a way to get back on path. All go. right, all right. Well, next up for the Tea Party was 1995's The Edges of Twilight. Martin co-produced this with Ed Stasium, an American producer who's got some major clout, working with everyone from the Ramones to Motorhead to the Talking Heads. Now, their goal on this album was to get even more worldly with this release by expanding the instruments that they used. Now, I'm not going to list the instruments they used because I'm going to butcher the pronunciation for most of them. But you had like the tabla and the sitar, and that's about all I got. <laughs> East Indian and African in origin were most of them. Uh, this thing would sell very well, reaching double platinum status and achieving number 11 on the Canadian charts, and it got gold status down under in Australia. Uh, and while the edges of Twilight didn't chart in the U.S., the Tea Party did start to develop a following in the States. So they had a small following. They actually have the distinction of being the first Canadian band ever to play the main stage at Lollapalooza. Well, that's something else. I think that's pretty cool. No, yeah. I mean, like, uh, the, the hip played at Woodstock, so did Our Lady Peace, but they all played so early in the day. Or they played side stages. I, I thought Our Lady Peace was at night. But I thought they were on one of the side stages. No, they were on the main stage. Oh, were they? Okay. No. No. Well, never mind. But uh, yeah. Our Lady, or not Our Lady Peace, the 
Lollapalooza was such like a mainstay, like a pop culture touchstone for that Gen X, yeah. like people coming of age in the 90s. So it's it's good to probably good exposure for them. Absolutely. Well, they pumped out four singles from uh, the Edges of Twilight. You had the killer kickoff track, Fire in the Head. Awesome song. That reached number 26. And I will say, the Tea Party have made a habit of making that first track on all of their albums absolute bangers. Yeah. So this was kind of where that started. Uh, the Bazaar, which is another great tune. That got to number 22 on the rock charts. Silence women and up in the young trees Beneath its steps forgotten streams Above the city of the evening star Behind its walls the grand bazaar As she walks through its endless maze Cur- Sister Awake was a minor hit, reaching number 61. Isolation will cradle the lies of things left unsaid. What will it take, Sister Sister. And although Shadows on the Mountainside didn't chart, its music video was filmed near our hometown of Ancaster and Hamilton and Dundas. Huh. So there you go. The album was wet with mostly positive reviews and scored a couple of Juno nominations in 1996. They'd lose Group of the Year to uh, Blue Rodeo, and unfortunately their quest for Rock Album of the Year was blocked by a jagged little pill. Stood in the way of winning. It was tough to beat Atlantis that year. What can, yeah. what can you say? Uh, I thought Splendor Spoils was a major upgrade of... Oh, excuse me. I thought Edges of Tomorrow was of this. Edges of Twilight. There you Fuck. Go. There we go. <laughs> I've only had a cup and a half of coffee. I thought Edges of Twilight was a major upgrade from Splendor Spoils. The production here is way better. The songwriting's tighter. The combination of 60s rock and traditional Middle Eastern sounds, much more focused, much more accessible. Uh, the blues influence is there big, which I really dug as well. Um, yeah, I thought this was great. Great album. Took the words right out of my mouth. <laughs> What'd you have for deep cuts? Uh, I only got to go through this once, so I didn't really get to, uh, cause it's not on Spotify. So I had to like listen to it on, uh, on the old YouTube. So I didn't really get to go through it multiple times. It's on times. Spotify. I didn't find it. Okay, here's okay. Here's why. When you go through Spotify, yeah. they put it out as a oh, 2014 yeah, album. Yeah, sorry, yeah. you're right. And they have that the deluxe version the version yeah. back to back. So oh, I, I did listen to this. It's not in chronological. They don't have it posted in chronological order. Yeah. So that's that's oh, why you might No, have there is one song I that uh, the Badger. I really like the Badger. It was like an Oh, okay. It was another um it was it was very Zeppelin-y with the jangly guitar. I really liked it. See, I didn't have that one on my list. I had uh, Silence, Turn the Lamp Down Low, yeah. Drawing Down the Moon, and Coming Home. Those yeah, those were, were all I great. Really liked. Yeah. Yeah, Silence yeah. was fantastic. Yeah. And the, the singles were off the charts, too. So, here we go. We got a great album out of these guys. Uh, it only took two tries. So, the first one was good. It just it wasn't as good as this one. Yeah. Look at you, well, Brian. Snooty McGee. It was good. Huh. Well, what, what do you want me to do? This is the gig. 
Say they were all great so no one gets bummed out? <laughs> you sound like Hank Hill. That's what I was going for. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, often bands will release EPs. And when they release an EP, when you're at the height of the tea party, it's done for strategic purposes. Okay? And the Tea Party's 1996 release, Alhambra, was no exception. They basically did it to ensure that they'd get consistent airplay on the radio between the edges of Twilight and the release they were working on, uh, Transmission. So it was kind of like an in-betweener. It only contains four, it contains four reworked acoustic songs, a remix of Sister Awake, and a new song called Time that features English folk singer Roy Harper on lead vocals. It also served as a multimedia CD that gives in-depth details on some of the exotic instruments that were used on their previous albums and the meanings and stories behind some of their songs. So uh, something I could have used, this al- this multimedia CD, when I researched <laughs> uh, the Tea Party. But, uh, you know, they're, uh, they don't work as well as they used to on uh, the current uh, current products uh alhambra sold fifty thousand copies which is very good for an ep and i recommend it uh especially the acoustic songs uh they have a totally different vibe as an acoustic band yeah there's no uh, it's nothing not that i've really ever heard anyone but imagine like if a pop punk does a band does like an acoustic version of a song where they're still just like palm muting on the acoustics like yeah most bands can really make a song completely different by playing it on acoustic and these yeah. are no exception and i think that some of those uh, like middle eastern uh, instruments that they use just they just sound a lot better when it's done in kind of a quieter more acoustic environment you yeah. know what i mean so yeah i i, I really like the, uh, the the acoustic album and they promote this ep with a small acoustic tour so if you were lucky enough to see that you got a whole different tea party experience Okay, we got the big album right here. This is the first time I had ever really heard of the Tea Party. Was when they released Transmission on August 19th, 1997. And it would see the band foray into the world of electronica. And they would experiment with some sampling. And the result was a much harder, more industrial sound. Yeah, I know the first time I'd ever heard the Tea Party for me... I remember hearing their name in, like, commercials for things. Yeah. But the first time I'd ever actually listened to a Tea Party song was Temptation. Same. Off of this album, and it was on Big Shiny Tunes, too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, your brother had this one. Yes, he loved it. Uh, and actually, there was, I think it was summer of grade 8, going into grade 9. We all wanted to see the Tea Party, because we were going to, it was my cousin, my brother, and I. We were staying at Wasega Beach for a week. And the, the tea party were playing in town, but I couldn't oh, wow. go. I couldn't go, and Megan couldn't go. Only my brother could have gone. Yeah. So I'm, I'm like, you can go. And he's like, what am I going to do? Go for it by myself like an <laughs> asshole? He's like, yeah, you're right. Oh, that sucks. Yeah. Oh, man. But there you go. That, that's cool that they played like a Wasaga Beach show at the height of their popularity. Well, I mean, the the... Some of those cottagey places have these really great clubs, like um, in like the Bracebridge area. There's a song. Yeah. There's a club called like the Key. The Key to Bala. The Key to Bala. That's it. Yeah. And, that's a great uh, venue. Yeah, and like the Arkells Arkells play there every <laughs> summer, basically. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, Nikita Ballard gets some big acts. Um, My mom told me all these stories it? about, like, because when we had the trailer, that, that apparently I went there all the time when I was a youngster, but I just have no memories. Really? And they went there, like, before they had us, but... Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think of what the band was. There was a band playing there when I first, like, my first weekend living in Perry Sound, and I, like, didn't really know anybody, and I had nothing to do. So I was like, should I get my car and drive to the Kita Bala? And I forget who the band was. It was a, it might have been, like, the Trues or something. And I was like, should I go? And I talked myself out of going by myself. I get it. I there's so there's yeah. been so many bands I'd like to see like and it's just simply going to Toronto, but I'm just like Ugh. there's nothing worse than the pre-band like uh, standing around if you like. I mean I have a I'm lucky because some some jackass might start talking to me because I'm so tall. Like, Look at this tall guy. <laughs> uh, and there's the conversation starter, but uh, generally on the whole. Uh, yeah, it's just the yeah. awkward standing around in line. It's like, well, you can't, have, you don't have any friends, no? Well, it's, 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 like, you think to yourself, like, seeing a movie by yourself is different because you're in a dark room, you got, you can sit down, you can look at your phone, you know what I mean? There's, there's shit you can do yeah. before you can show up just as the coming attractions are starting, you know what I mean? With a concert, you can't really time out getting there right when the band takes the stage. There's yeah. so much waiting around. And I've gotten separated from you or other concert buddies before. And it sucks when yeah. you're standing around by yourself. You see all these people having a marvelous time with their friend groups. And you're like, oh. <laughs> Although, I don't you know, know how. I mean, Warp Tour aside, I don't know how you could get separated from me and not find me. I'm literally like a foot taller than everyone else. I, uh, it happens. Yeah. <laughs> it just happens. I remember, like, when you, I would try to get up close to certain shows, and you'd just stand in the back because you're a tall guy, and it was hard for you to be up close. Yeah. So, yeah, we could separate sometimes that way. It just happens. You go to the bathroom, oh, where are my friends? Oh. Yeah, that's fair. Sucks. Yeah. Oh. <sighs> anyway, and also, we'd go to shows before the advent of cell phones, really, too. So yeah. you can't go, hey, where are you? You know, now you when you had your flip phone, you just turn it off and leave it in the car. Yeah, so it would yeah. get damaged, you know? Or, yeah, you just had it in your pocket, but you're not really checking it yeah. for, like, texts and stuff. Because, like, trying to friggin', like, sound like the friggin' predator trying to text somebody back. I broke my phone at a concert before. Oh, really? Just being up at the front and getting pressed against the barrier, the screen broke. Oh. I take it to Tony Chow when he fixed it. <laughs> Cell phone fixing guy in Hamilton. I think it was Tony Chow, I can't remember. Uh, something like that. <laughs> anyway, uh, the Transmission album was heavily influenced by the dystopian works of authors like Aldous Huxley and George Orwell. And that's probably why the music videos had such a dark vibe. For instance, the video for Temptation, they're in a literal dungeon with a giant snake swimming around their feet. Yeah. So and that little they, girl they, is eating like what I think is a heart. Oh God! Yeah, I think you're right. Yikes! Or yeah, maybe they, it's they, a they, liver they, or they something. Got, but they definitely wanted to go with a bit of a gothic vibe. Yeah. On this release. Well, I mean, it was uh, also kind of the uh, the style at the time because Marilyn Manson was getting big, Nine Inch Nails, Tool, yeah. all these Deftones were starting to take off. All these bands, so it was definitely matching the, well, the scene at the time. Then why don't we get into it right now, then? 
Okay, because we we this is their for for me this is their biggest release. Even though I believe Edges of Twilight sold more in Canada, yeah. um, for me this is their big one. Okay, height of their popularity, Tea Parties on the Radio in Canada. It fits in beautifully, like you said, with the Nine Inch Nails and with Marilyn Manson. Yeah. Why aren't American listeners who like the Nine Inch Nails and Marilyn Manson and there's millions of them buying up Tea Party records? The only thing I can think of is the the lyrical content. I think Jeff Martin's almost too smart for his own good. Like, I, cause I think that I think because people like with Nine Inch Nails, like the lyrics are very simple. They don't get too. They're not that hard to you know comprehend. Mm-hmm. Same with Marilyn Manson. His stuff is very just like kind of like slaps you in the face. Uh, whereas like the Tea Party's kind of like buried in metaphors and all these other things and like it's just it's very like a lot of wordplay and it, i think it's just but it's still like they it, it it's not without mainstream appeal oh i know like the cor- like the courses are very catchy yeah. and things like that so I yeah don't. and i don't i don't know if, if if you're giving you know trent reznor who's won academy awards for his for his work but, but he's won or, his, you know, say his what you will awards, about him as a human being oh okay. his awards are for more for his uh, musicianship and like the scores and all these yeah, things. Okay. So that's the thing. I've never slapped them against uh, slapped his musicianship. What, what do you mean? What about his him as a human being? Oh, I was, I was switching to Manson at that point. Oh, okay. <laughs> 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 I was like, I heard Trent Reznor's a nice guy. <laughs> I was talking about Marilyn Manson, who, uh, believe me, uh, Tea Party would not be fans of because uh, I'm sure the White Ribbon campaign is not a fan of his. <laughs> yeah. Um, what's it called? But yeah, I, I just, I, that's one of the things that's stumped me completely. I think I have a solution that I'll get to at the end of the show, but I'm, I'm sitting here and I'm like, if I'm a kid and I'm into the goth rock and I'm into industrial, I, I would love the tea party. And also like, yeah. you know, a lot of the people who liked the, like the joy division and stuff like that back in the eighties or late seventies, early eighties. Cause they they do a cover of a Joy Division song later. Well, I mean, we'll yes, get into do. that. And yeah. so, like, clearly that was one of their influences. And so, you think that all these people would like that stuff with the bleak outlook that would match Ian Curtis's. You know, I'm I'm like pulling at Trump with my hand gestures right now. But uh, I don't know. It's it's very puzzling. And I've, the whole week I've been listening to these albums, I've been scratching my head, and I, I got nothing. Yeah, I'm stumped too. Well, four singles would be released from this disc. You had Temptation, which we talked about. Boy, I'm losing my voice. Temptation, which we talked about earlier, which was the song that got me and Brian into the Tea Party, that made it to number four on Canadian rock charts, and it was the band's only charting, only song ever to chart in the U.S. It reached number thirty-six on the active rock charts, whatever that means. Um, <laughs> the album, the album version of this uh, song too, is very cool. It features a Middle Eastern intro pretty long one as well but apparently yeah. if you listen in there there's a sped up sample of when the levee breaks by led zeppelin uh. 
Yeah. And one of the reasons why Stuart Chatwood got a composing credit on uh, the video games Road Rash 3D and NHL 2002 was because Temptation was used on both of those video games. Ah. Yeah. So the NHL video games are very good to Canadian bands. We had Gob on a whole bunch of them. Well, uh, EA Sports. Travel Charger was on a couple. I'm like yeah, 90% sure EA Sports is based out of Vancouver. So that's probably oh, why. Oh, really? I'm like, okay. Yeah. So that's why all those that's games cool. are coming out of there. I'm 90% sure. Another big release off of this album was Psycho Pomp. Yeah. That topped out at number nine of the rock charts. You know, I remember when I was a kid. You first listening to T.P.R.D. I didn't like this when it come on a bunch of music because it starts off that guitar and it's like, you want this? I'm like, ah, God. And I change it and I come back and the video's still on because it's super long. I'm like, ah. <laughs> listening to it now, when I went back, I thought this was one of the best songs of the album. It's great. It builds. Yeah. Sorry, beautifully. Uh, like, like an orchestra. Yep. Fantastic song. Loved it. That's one thing I will say about these Tea Party albums. I wouldn't say there's chuffa on them, but the, they definitely make a meal out of each album. It's like uh, each one almost is clocks in at an hour. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but it's not, it's not excess where it's like, I could do without like three of these songs. You know what I mean? It's like it's worth it because it's like an experience. Yeah. Yeah. You, know, you, you find a little bit of chuffa here and there if you want to get nitpicky. But it's not uh, an overall setback, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's not a big complaint about the album. Was that ah, oh, there's too much filler. Uh, there was also some of the other singles they had: the industrial rock song in a blender that was Babylon. That's just a high octane bit of craziness that got to number fifty six on the charts. It was the last song to be picked for the album, Babylon, and it features a drum sample from Psycho Pop. So they took the drums from Psycho Pop, they sped them up, and put them in Babylon. Kind of neat. And that was also in the video game Road Rash 3D. So that kind of works as a video game song. We talked about that with the Conline Crush, how they were uh, video game music. Remember I said yeah. that? It's some of the Tea Party stuff, especially for this album, you can fit into that category. Finally, you had Release. That was a very nice ballad, and that would actually serve as a charity single for the White Ribbon campaign against spousal abuse that we talked about earlier. All the money from that single, or at least a portion of it, went to the White Ribbon campaign. Uh, and that would reach number 19 on the rock charts. Uh. Transmission was met with positive reviews and would receive Juno nominations for both Rock Album of the Year, and the band would get one for Best Group, but both times that Our Lady Peace Clumsy album blocked them from a trophy. Yeah. Uh, Industrial is something that suits the Tea Party incredibly well, and I definitely like this album. 
Uh, it's high octane, uh, but they got a song like Psychopomp that, you know, just kind of, it's almost a bit of a masterpiece. Is that giving it too much praise? <laughs> no, it's a, it it's, really is. I mean, it definitely lent itself, like, why well, you can see why they went into these orchestral tours and things like that, because they, they, right from the jump, they had an ear for it. They had a handle on it. Like, you know, sometimes some people are like, oh, I was tasked to score this mute movie, and I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. Or it's like, like, like Jeff Martin could easily, like, that band could easily score a movie. Like, they could be the yeah. next, like, Danny Elfman or Hans Zimmer, like, as a group. Who was the other Canadian singer? that We did another one when you said, ah, he could be the next Danny Elfman. Was that, uh, oh, I think it was Hayden Neal that you said. I never said Danny Elfman, but I said he could have gone into, like, he could have made a lot of music for, like, black shows or movies, being, like, a unique voice, and but he also had a good feel for just sounds in general. Because right, you were okay. the one that said, like, something about scores with him. Okay. Well, yeah, no, because, you know, a lot of these guys who are very, very, you know, well-versed uh, can see that bigger picture. When yeah. it comes to a song beyond the three-minute radio rock kind of thing. Right. Uh, for deep cuts, I liked Gyroscope, Alarum, and Emerald. Those are my favorites from this one that weren't singles because this album was a banger for singles. Yeah. I yeah. liked uh, I liked Army Ants, Pulse, and uh, Aftermath. Interesting that we're, we're picking different tunes I like from the, each album. I, I like the other ones that you said, too, but I just okay. think these are ones that stuck out to me. So all in all, top notch. Yeah. Now, while Ebert's the Tea Party, <laughs> yes, remember Siskel <laughs> was a dick. Now, while the Tea Party um, would be uh, what's it called for me and Brian reached the pinnacle with transmission, chart wise, the biggest success would come in 1999 with the release of Triptych. Gone were the 60s rock influences. While the band did still incorporate the Middle Eastern vibes and electronica songs, uh, excuse me, sounds from Transmission, the songwriting shifted now to focus more on melody, which made things a lot more accessible to mass audiences. And boy, did they pick a good one for the leadoff single from Triptych. That was Heaven's Coming Down. If we could hear a little bit of that right now. It turned out to be a massive hit for the Tea Party, and it became their first ever number one single. That's number one on the Canadian rock charts, and it scored a Juno nomination for Single of the Year, but eventually it would lose to Bob Cajun by the Tragically Hip, a song that the Tea Party would later cover, you posted on Instagram. Yeah. No shame in losing to that song, but I gotta tell you, Heaven's Coming Down, that chorus, and the way that, that, that that's, it shows you that Jeff Martin isn't just about these dark, brooding, gothic numbers. You know what I mean? He can write a perfect radio-friendly pop song. And he did that with Heaven's Coming Down. Well, that, and he just has a really great handle on just song structure and everything like that. And, and uh, just how, and that's another one that just builds with, uh, with the chorus and everything. And like layering things under the chorus. And uh, yeah, it's beautiful. But also, I, we, I remember when I listened to that when I was young, I was like, well, the Tea Party have lost it because they weren't really like, because like I liked that song. But it was also like, granted, I was like a 13 year old dipshit. 
So you got to remember that. But I was like, because I, I expected Transmission 2, Electric Boogaloo. Uh, and I, it, that song wasn't that. So I assumed, like, well, they've lost that industrial hard rock edge. I'm out. See, I, when I thought but about now, Heaven's Coming now Down, I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Now, okay, I, but now what, I think it's great. But what I was trying to say was they found something that could get played on pop radio. Yeah. But they were, it didn't feel to me like they were selling themselves out. It still felt like something, because they do have the softer songs. Like, Release is a softer song. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it does have the brooding orchestral underneath it. But I knew that they had, yeah, the hard-rocking songs like Temptation, but also the softer ones like Release. And I kind of thought, oh, okay, they're going with the softer one first, but this one just happens to have a killer chorus. Right. Yeah. And I, I thought they did. I don't know. I thought they still sounded like what that. What shirt are you wearing? This is like little, it's from like Old Navy. It's got like little campsites on it. Oh. Tents and trees and mountains. Like you ever camp. I camp. You never camp. Sure I did. I used to go to Turkey Point every year to camp. Yeah, sleeping at outside of Brent's cottage is not the same thing as camping, numb nuts. <laughs> sure it is. You're in a tent. You gotta cook your own food. It's a barbecue. You're literally outside of a, of a home <laughs> that has all the amenities. <laughs> Frizzle frazzle. <laughs> uh, anyway, the second single from Triptych uh, would be almost as successful uh, as Heaven's Coming Down. That would be The Messenger. That got to number two on rock radio. That's a cover of Daniel Lanois, who we've talked to, uh, talked about on this uh, show before, as being one of the great Canadian producers of all time. Dude wrote some hits for himself too, uh, and his version of the Messenger would actually place a number ninety-six on the Huffington Post's list of the top one hundred greatest Canadian songs of all time. And it wouldn't be the uh, last time that they'd uh, cover a Daniel Lanois song. There's one later in their uh, repertoire that they get to. So they're big that fans of him. That dude produced, um, what was it, Joshua Tree. Yeah. He did. He did indeed. So <laughs> the guy, uh, you know what? That's usually where these great producers start. You know, yeah. Bob Rock, he started the Payolas. Yeah. You know, you know, Jeff Martin produced all of his own stuff when he was with the Tea Party. You know what I mean? It's... It's part of the game, you know. It's it's kind of like you know that old Mitch Hedberg joke where he's like, uh, "I moved out here to L.A., man," and everyone's like, "Mitch, you're a great comedian. Can you act?" And I'm like, "Hey, Gord, you're a great chef. Can you farm?" <laughs> some people, I'm trying to say, some musicians produce it's not the same. Others, it comes natural. I know. That's what I'm trying to say. Uh, and maybe don't play the clip of me doing the Hedberg. Maybe find Hedberg doing the joke, because it's a lot funnier when he does it than when I do it. <laughs> if you want. You don't have to. Uh, now, uh, what else? Oh, three other singles would be released from Triptych, but none of them would chart. You had the rocking kickoff track. They keep that going on this album. Touch, uh, These Living Arms, and Gone. Uh, as a whole... Triptych would reach number four on the Canadian album charts, achieving double platinum status and garnering stellar reviews from critics. They ate this one up with a spoon. In fact, the European metal publication, Rock Hard, 
included it at number 435 on its list of the top 500 rock and metal albums of all time. Wow. Pretty high praise. Praise from Caesar. Yeah. Now, I tried to read the review, but I think it's all in German. So, uh... It's all what? Kind of hard. It's all in German. It's like a German publication. uh, Rock hard. So, but you know something about those Germans? They like their rock and metal. That's true. Like to 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 put the tea party in that list. It's pretty good. All right. So aside from single of the year, the nod that we talked about earlier for Heaven's Coming Down, Triptych would earn a Juno nomination for Group of the Year. Well, that would be the Tea Party that earned that. They lose that to the Matthew Good Band. They got Best Rock Album of the Year. But they lose that to the Matthew Good Band's Beautiful Midnight. <laughs> and Jeff Martin would earn a Producer of the Year nomination, but he used, lose that to Bob Rock and Tal Bachman for Tal Bachman's oh. She's So High album. <laughs> <laughs> Nepotism at play there with Tal Bachman. But, you know, it's funny. It shows you how good a producer that uh, Bob Rock was because, you know, he made that to be a giant radio hit, She's So High. Even yeah. If Tal Bachman didn't really do anything else after that. If I was Randy Bachman, so. I'm like, shame. <laughs> this is garbage. <laughs> he got a hit, though. Still. Oh, yeah, She's So High that, still gets played on the radio That today. doesn't mean shit. There's so many hits that are uh, that have been around forever that stink. That doesn't mean just because so it's a I, hit. I, I got a question, okay? Brian Lance Jr. comes along, okay? <laughs> he works hard to be a musician. Maybe you'll use your... Maybe this podcast blows up. We get some major cred in the music industry. You pull all the strings possible to get him to record a single. It reaches number one. It's not very good, but it reaches number one. <laughs> Are you going to shame your son I'd be for like, having one big hit, even if you didn't like it? I'd be like, good for you. Not my cup of tea. But good for a you. lot of people did like a lot of people did like she's so high that's the reason it made it to number one well at least you wouldn't shame your son that's good or daughter or whoever uh, rude <laughs> I was gonna say take the burp out of the podcast but that rude was funny <laughs> Triptych, I thought was a good album yeah they were able to produce music that was more accessible while not u- losing their unique uh, Tea Party vibe. At least that's what I thought. Maybe you thought different. Uh, and once no, again, the like singles I said, the- I, that was 13-year-old dipshit me. Me with some perspective and actual more musical knowledge now appreciates this album. Okay, I understand. Get the wax out of ears. Well, uh, Deep Cuts, I had Underground, The Hallison Days, and A Slight Attack. I like those ones, but I thought the singles were the best tracks on the album. Those are good. Great Big Lie was really good, too. Another one of those building tracks, but uh, yeah, yeah, that was good. The Tea Party would next release the greatest hits album, Tangent, the following year. It would actually score the band their first Juno Award. Forget this, Brian. Best artwork. I was about to, like, fist pump. I'm like, yay, they get something, but just for artwork. I hate that. Come on. You get a band that's this talented and then they'll finally win a Juno for something someone else did. You know? <laughs> Best liner so notes. Minor. Oh my God. I don't think they should have a Juno for that. Shouldn't like that go like, I don't know, whatever. What do they give out for art? I don't know. Like, they don't at the Oscars give out Best Movie Poster. <laughs> 
know, especially now because movie posters just have become so humdrum. It's always the same thing. Like Denzel's looking left or it's always just like this big, <laughs> it's this big like, uh, mosh of like everyone doing something like those the the marvel movie posters have kind of ruined it because now they're doing that with like everyone yeah the marvel well the marvel they they've started kind of falling into a formula where you just get yeah. a bunch of heads in a shape on the on and then the you get a bunch of like action on the outside kind of where like they're actually doing stuff some of those posters though from the early 80s and the 70s that were well look at hand painted look over my shoulder those things are beautiful uh, back, oh, yeah, to the future. back to the future that's an iconic movie poster yeah. Another lost art. Oh, well. Yeah. Anyway, so Tangent got best artwork at the Junos. Uh, but this Greatest Hits album would uh, include a few new remixes, a cover of Painted Black by the Rolling Stones, back-to-back weeks. We talked about <laughs> a band that covered Painted Black by the Rolling Stones. Uh, but the big hit on this one was Walking Wounded, a new single that they put out, an awesome song. They got to number 17 on the rock charts and would also appear on Big Shiny Tune 6. And uh, whenever you get a band, especially really when you're really into a band and you've already got their whole discography, uh, sometimes you don't have a desire to pick up a compilation. like I know. I hate when bands do that. But when you, I see this, is, I like this because this will make you go, okay, I better buy this album. The compilation, if it's strictly for that, so well, I, I don't know. I think it's good to tickle your, your buying bone. You two, oh, you t- they they put in uh, what's it called? Uh, sw- uh, sweet thing, uh, the, the sweetest, sweetest thing. thing. Yeah, the sweetest yeah. thing. Oh, okay, no, we're mis- we're misunderstanding it. Yes, I don't like it. With a band I like puts a new single on the greatest hits because I've already got their stuff. So why would I need to get the greatest hits? Yeah. That I get. What I'm trying to say is I like it when a compilation album comes along, like a Big Shiny Tunes, that oh, takes oh, that one yeah, song yeah, yeah. with yeah, yeah. a bunch of other songs I don't have so I can buy that instead of going to buy the greatest hits gotcha. because I already have all the songs. Yeah. There we go. Now we're on the same page. <laughs> now we're on the trolley. All right. In 2001, the Tea Party would release Interzone Mantras, which Jeff Martin viewed as a return to form. And something that really captures the band's high-energy live show. Martin promised less studio tricks and more of a just three dudes jamming it out kind of vibe. Lyrics were written by Martin while he was on vacation in Prague. So there's a big influence from that. And they're also influenced by the works of Wim Wenders, Aleister Crowley, Mikhail Bulgakov, and ancient Greek mythology. It shows you how worldly I am. I have not heard of any of those writers. What were they again? Wim Wenders. Nope. Which I just started laughing at how goofy that name is. Oh, Aleister Crowley. You never heard of Aleister Crowley? I know John Crowley. <laughs> there's a there's a deep cut name, Aleister Crowley. Yeah. What do you do? The Satanist. Like he wrote the book. Yeah. Like he wrote the Satan Satan's Bible. Uh, like so many uh, like Zeppelin and all these bands, like are influenced by the works of Aleister Crowley. Sounds familiar. <laughs> Sounds familiar. Not, I never, I never said I was a very cultured human being when it came to literature. Okay. Also, Mikhail Bulgakov. Do you know him? Yeah, he's an occultist. Not, not, not the Bulgakov. The Aleister Crowley. He's an occultist. Okay. 
right. How have you not heard that? Yeah, it totally sounded familiar. <sighs> Your wife. <laughs> very well. What? Your wife follows like the Wiccan religion. I'm sure they probably yeah. know Alistair Crowley. I'm sure she does. She's in the basement right now. So I can't right. just pull her on to ask her. I'll ask her when she gets up. All right. Okay. Oh, she heard. <laughs> All right. Anyway, I got anyway. excited when I when I started listening to this album because the first song was called Interzone, and I thought it was a cover of Joy Division, but it wasn't. But it's still a very good oh. song. Well, let me get that. All right, here she is. Hold on. All right, Brian's chastising me because I don't know who Aleister Crowley is. Is he right to chastise me? Yes. He is right to chastise <laughs> yes. me. Does he know who Aleister Crowley is? Yes. Yeah, then, yeah, you have, he has every right to chastise me. What did he do? He's the founder of Wicca. He is the founder of Wicca. Yeah. Okay. We don't like him. Oh, but Wiccans don't like him? Well, it's split. Oh, okay. Yeah, him and Gardner people don't really like because it's kind of culty. Okay. And they established rules that was very much formed in the patriarchy, which if you're familiar with Wicca or paganism at all, it's all about the matriarchy or an equality of roles. Right. Yes. Okay. Usually when you're talking about Aleister Crawley, you're talking about either people that are aware that it's vaguely occultish and choose to go with those names, like Alistair Black. Oh yeah, sure, the wrestler, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah it, it, it's just like, people usually name drop him. Just for the record. But don't know exactly what he did. I didn't know who Alistair Crowley was, but Bryn mentioned the wrestler, Alistair Black, and I was like, oh yeah, sure, that guy. No, I get it. Uh, you should be in a trailer <laughs> eating pork rinds. don't know exactly rinds. what he did. Um, they just know that he's involved in the occult and therefore is like evil or dangerous or sure. serious which is why he gets referenced a lot okay like even in uh, neil gaiman's good omens yeah the like the demon guy is named crowley because of alistair crowley okay yeah, and yeah. supernatural what about mr crowley by black sabbath oh probably about him? probably oh, okay and also super little, uh, i like that song play a little of that mr crowley Supernatural, they have a character named Crowley. Okay. Well, the John Crowley, who I knew, uh, was not remotely dark or uh, occultish. He was... <laughs> he liked Police Academy movies. <laughs> and the gargoyles. <laughs> the only okay. thing that was dark about him was the windowless room he slept in. for like... that, was, that wasn't his fault. No, I know. Yeah, that was from our crooked landlord that tried to make a room not illegal. Two, <laughs> there was a second one Dude, back there yeah. too. Oh boy. Okay, let's get back to Interzone Mantras after our education on uh, Alistair Crowley. Three singles were released from this album. You had Lullaby, which reached number three on the Canadian charts. Wanting more than the bless of a beautiful kiss. Breaking, which also peaked at number three. In the face of the fire, you see angels Will they hear your desires? And Martin was inspired to write Soul Breaking after receiving an anonymous letter from a fan who's being molested by a family member. And this, uh, 
song was again used as a charity single to raise money for the White Ribbon Campaign because that impacted him so much having this person who was like, your music is saving me, but it was anonymous, so there's nothing he could do. So that's right. Made it another charity single, yeah. And uh, it was also uh, a charity single for the Morty Frank Memorial Fund. That was a friend of the band who was killed in the September 11th attacks. Oh. So, yeah, they had a lot of heavy stuff happening in their lives around uh, this release. Uh, you also had Angels, which only charted down under, reaching number 61 on the charts, and it would be the band's final single to chart in Australia. Interzone Mantras would sell considerably less than their previous releases, selling 50,000 copies, which was good enough to achieve gold status. However, it was the Tea Party's best-selling album to date in Australia. Huge down there. Got to number six on the Australian charts. And because, Brian, the Junos are our favorite thing in the whole world, (laughs) they spaced out nominations for Interzone Mantras across both the 2002 and 2003 ceremonies. So 2002, they were nominated for Best Group, but they lose to Nickelback. And Martin and Nick Blagona were nominated for Recording Engineers of the Year, but they would lose out to Randy Staub for his work with Nickelback. And then in 2003, Interzone Mantras would be nominated for Best Rock Album of the Year, but that would lose to Gravity... By Our Lady Peace. And I'm going to go on my high horse here and say Interzone Mantras should have won. Yeah, over Gravity? Because over Gravity, over any album. Because I felt that this was the Tea Party's best album. That's Actually, I was thinking that too, now that I think about it. Because I was like... I knew we would talk about this, and I I was like... As as good as Transmission is and Triptych, this one... Like Jeff Martin said, did feel like a return back to form, and it was it was just solid songs, all yeah. up and down the whole thing. That vibe of capturing their live show on recording, they succeeded with phenomenally. Because I think it was around this time. Do you remember Munch Music used to have Snow Job every spring break, where they yeah. go to like Whistler or something like that, hang out at a ski hill, and like the Boston's or Eve Six would play on ski hill, then big or show the at night, they'd have Chumbawamba. That I played on our gob. God played. Yeah, God played it too. Sloan did it. Treble Charger did it. They all did it, right? Well, for whatever reason, in the early 2000s, they decided to just kind of forget what made them original and just copy MTV. So they had Sand Job. Yeah. Went down to Florida for spring break. And I remember the year, I, I, I remember. Blink was there. It was Blink, Third Eye Blind, The Tea Party. And I'm missing one more. There was one more that played during the day on the beach. I think it was a Canadian group. Might have been... I don't think it was the rat... Might have been Cardinal? Maybe? Can't remember. But... Nothing worse than Sandy Handy. Can't remember who the fourth artist was. But between Blink-182, Third Eye Blind, and the Tea Party, the Tea Party blew everyone away and easily had the best live performance. They killed it. I remember thinking about that at the time. And at the time, I was a huge Blink-182 fan. And thinking, oh, no one can touch Blink-182. And then, you know, watching Mark have to sit down to play the bass line for uh, 
carousel because it was too complicated for him to play standing up. I'm like, this is pathetic. And then freaking Tea Party. And, and Thirsty Blind were really bad, too. They had a really bad performance at Sandra. I mean, sometimes people but, just do that as a shtick. It's like, I'm just going to sit down. Perhaps, but he also said, I'm going to sit down because it's really complicated <laughs> to play. He said it to the fans. <laughs> so, when the Tea Party went out there, they just freaking crushed it. And, uh, I, I had all those good memories harken back to me when I listened to this. And you were going to get into the song Interzone because, and I wanted to stop you because I wanted to talk about this song. When we do our compilation at the end of this for the season, our playlist, that's going to be the Tea Party song I pick. That song is awesome. Yeah. We talk about the lead-off tracks and how they're so good at Tea Party. You're really kicking it off with a bang. Inner Zone, it's high energy, and they use a horn section. And I am, like I said, love that horn section. I'm horny for it. <laughs> and the way they make it work sounds so good. Oh, loved it. Loved it, loved it, loved it. Also liked uh, The Master and Margarita and Must Must. I really like the song uh, Apathy because yeah. it had a, the way he was singing, it had a very Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds vibe, like a red right hand kind of thing. Oh, he's got that good baritone Jeff Martin, yeah. so I can see the Nick Cave. Yeah. But also it was more like the, the pulse, like the, the, the rhythm of the song so- sounded like that. Not okay. just his singing, but yeah. Struck me Nick Cave-ish. Come on over here, child, talk it all Anything else you got in this album? No, it's like what you said. There's just this might be one of my favorites by them, and so it's just it's hard to pick because I'm just like rattle off the whole bloody list. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of good stuff. Uh, and this would be the album, Brian, where you mentioned it for their tour of Australia, where they did the symphonic tour. This was the album where they promoted it uh, with symphonies. So what was cool was they didn't take a symphony on tour with them. Each city. They would hook up with the local symphony there. Oh, that's cool. And I really like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It gives the, that must have been expensive because they can't do. just throw sheet music at these people and be like, "Play it." Because give them time to rehearse. You got to book a show, right? So when you book a venue and you're doing this idea, they do that while they're recording the album. Right. I'm sure this symphony's got time to learn it. Plus, these are world-class musicians in these symphonies. That's true. It's not like they us. They don't just like, go for uh, seed fillers. Like, up here, the Thunder Bay Symphony Orchestra, people move here all the time just to play in the orchestra. Wow. You know what I mean? It's not just locals. You know, your your local symphony is filled with top-notch musicians. It's just not, ah, we need a tuba player. Who plays tuba? Phil the plumber? I've played tuba in 20 years. I don't care. We need someone to sit there with a tuba. It's not like that. <laughs> I always thought it was funny. Our concert band, two girls that could barely like stand over the tuba played the tuba. That's and always the case in those movies. You know what I mean? Like you'll always see. Uh, wasn't there an episode of The Fresh Prince where he's got a Will's got to like do the carpool? And they're all these like little girls, and they're they're all got their instruments, and he's picking up the one little girl, and she's like four one, and she's holding like the big stand up bass, and he's just waving at her. He's like, nope, drives right past her. 
think I remember that. But yeah, I mean, the girls were physically taller than the tuba, but they were very thin. And uh, like, yes. I'm surprised the tuba didn't crush their laps. Uh, you ever held a tuba? Yes. Do you ever give it a whirl? Nah. I wanted to play, uh, I wanted to, well, I told you, I wanted to play the bass clarinet, because where I sat in the, in the concert band, I had the, I had the tubas, the oboe, and the bass clarinet all bopping in my left ear, and it sounded so cool that I, I, so I went to Aylesworth, I was like, I want to learn the bass clarinet over the summer, she's like, first you gotta start the clarinet, I'm like, pass. (laughs) It's funny though, with the bass clarinet, it's more like a saxophone. Yeah. 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 Well, that stinks. Um, it's weird of all the instruments that that's what Jimmy Kimmel plays. Yeah, the bass clarinet. Well, I wonder... I don't know. I've heard Jimmy Kimmel when he goes out there jamming with the Boston's. It's not like the bass clarinet's really present No. when he's playing it. So I, I don't know how much he's kind of faking his way through or oh, how much probably. he's actually Yeah. Well, the yeah. saxophones would drown him out anyway. Yeah, and also, is it funny if he just walks out with a sax and he's just playing the sax, or is it funnier if he walks out with a weird-looking bass clarinet? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It'd be funny if you walked out with a big tuba trying to like match their sound with a tuba. Well, I was gonna say, I think if I were to be playing in a ska band in a horn section, I'd trade in the tuba for a sousaphone. That's is, the tuba that, that wraps goes around, around your, your stomach. Body. I was literally yeah, just thinking about that. Like, what is that called? A sousaphone. Uh. Yeah, yeah. They, it's 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 exact same instrument, makes the exact same sound. It's just it's shaped differently for marching bands. Right. Yes. I actually went on two dates with a girl who played the sousaphone. Really? Actually, it was just one date. Yeah. Do you know what's interesting? Because Remembrance Day is around the corner. I've been trying to watch new war movies that I haven't seen before. Yeah. And so I watched a movie last night called The Devil's Brigade. Dropkick Murphys did a song about it. But yeah. uh, it's a it's a split. U.S. slash Canadian yeah. units. It was, a real, it was a real thing, you know. Yeah, oh, I know. Yeah, yeah. But apparently, the movie itself is just like, it's a great war film, but like in terms of any historical accuracy, it's nonsense. But because uh, I watched this W5 thing about about them, and the lady interviewed four surviving members, and they're like, did you watch the movie? And they're like, it was BS. <laughs> <laughs> Who's in that one? Uh, well, actually, Carol O'Connor has a small role at the end, but oh, yeah. uh, I didn't really recognize anyone else. Because okay. the, the other thing, too, is this movie kind of got buried under the weight of The Dirty Dozen, which is a very similar plot. Right. Because, um, like, the, the, but what, the whole reason I was getting at it, so the Americans are a bunch of rough and tumble, like, dirtbags that all get this assignment of because they were, like, in jails or uh, they were in, like, the brig for doing stuff in their own company whereas like yeah. the the canadians come in like these guys are all get off the train and they're all fist fighting each other then <laughs> then like the canadians come in with like a bagpiping like marching band they're all in uniforms <laughs> coming in like proper. the whole movie is like this era of superiority that like we're better than the americans it was pretty funny until they all gelled as a unit yeah. but it was, it was pretty funny well in marvel comics captain america and wolverine served together on the devil's brigade Ah. They make mention of that quite often. Yeah. Did they ever do an actual comic run that goes back to that? A lot of flashbacks. Mm. Yeah. I, they might have. I don't know. They should. You know, they should. It's, it's, you know how... You know how when the movie comes out that's based on the book? Yeah. I'm like, well, why do I need to read the book? I got the movie. 
I've been reading comic books for decades. And once Iron Man started and the MCU started up and were true to the books, kind of just stopped reading the books and just started <laughs> and watch the movies. I mean, when now that... Uh, and I know they already did the Cap origin story that was set in World War II, but uh, it would be cool if they did... Now that X-Men is in that, if they did like a little Devil's Brigade thing. Yeah. But they probably won't. Where are we here? Oh, I wanted that, too, for the Cap origin stories. I wanted just a scene where, uh, where Cap's Logan walking. And I want, all he has to say is this. Ah, you Canadians need to learn, learn some manners. Put out that cigar, soldier. And he'd be like, shut up, bud. Bub. And that's <laughs> it. You don't even see the guy's face, but you know, yeah. it's, you know it's him. You know, but nah, they didn't do it. All right, where am I here? Oh, Seven Circles was the band's next release, and Martin got some pro- help, uh, some production help on this one from the legendary Bob Rock. Yeah, for the Paolas. Uh, Gavin Brown would help out on this one, too, and he's worked with everyone from the Bare Naked Ladies to Billy Talent to the New Kids on the Block, and he got a Grammy nomination for his work on the Twilight Eclipse soundtrack. Um, Metric performed a song for that soundtrack. He produced it. He got a credit, and the album was uh, nominated, so he, he got a Grammy nomination. Uh. Their goal for this album was to create something positive. Even though the band was going through some turmoil at the time, which we'll get into, uh, but they basically dropped their whole dystopian feel that was so heavy on their previous uh, releases in favor of tunes that could even be considered love songs. So they were getting mainstream at this point. Yeah. What, uh, what, what was the turmoil, did they say? Or did you find it? Uh... Yeah, well, it comes out when they broke up. Basically, I don't know if Martin was happy in the direction of the band. But he's uh, the front man, writes all the songs, and kind of like co-produces everything. This is his doing. He wanted to spread his wings. Uh, he wanted to go explore. Uh, yeah. But we're almost there for that. Three singles would come from this album. You had Writings on the Wall, made it to number three on the rock charts. And I remember first hearing that song. Yeah. And thinking to myself, shit, this is rocking, but this doesn't sound like the Tea Party. Yeah, th- this sounds like it's almost like more, uh, what's their face, like a STP kind of vibe. You know what it even reminds me of? Maybe it's just the guitar line. Kind of reminds me a little of Testify by Rage Against the Machine. Oh, I can see that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, he's not rapping in it, granted. No. But... Is that... Like, very bouncy guitar fingers. Exactly. Yeah, bluesy a little bit, too. What made them unique wasn't quite there. You know what I mean? And they kind of went from being the Tea Party to being... I don't know, just another band that you'd hear on the radio. Although, Writings on the Wall is a cool song, and I do like it. Yeah. I don't know. Stargazer was another single from that album. It reached number four on the rock charts. I always as well. like that song. It is very completely like, like the the chorus is so positive and all this kind of yeah, lovey dovey. You're right. So it's. Yeah, they they really went in an opposite direction. Uh, They also had their song, Oceans. Uh, That was released as a single. 
dedicated to the memory of their manager, Steve Hoffman, and he died in 2003 from lung cancer. Cancer, And, uh, yeah, they released a single that didn't chart, but uh, with heavy hearts, they put that one out. Other songs of notes from this release include Empty Glass, which is considered to be part of the major Tom saga that many artists have contributed to over the years. All started with David Bowie's Space Odyssey, uh, excuse me, Space Oddity, uh, and then Peter Schilling had a big hit with Major Tom coming home in the 80s. So the Tea Party made their con- a contribution to that. Uh, also, it features uh, Wishing You Would Stay, a duet with one Har- Holly McNarland, who we may cover on a future edition of Canada FM. Mm. Seven Circles did pretty much the same sales numbers as Interzone Mantras. It reached number five in the Canadian charts and get gold status. The Juno Academy gave it a nomination for Best Rock Album 2005. But they had lose to some 41 in their album, Chuck. And uh, this is a very divisive one among fans. Hmm. A lot of them love it. They like how the sound's accessible. They think the tunes are good. Uh, you know, Jeff Martin's voice didn't change. He's still singing that deep voice, which a lot yeah. of the Tea Party fans love. But losing all that dystopian, the whole gothic edge is gone. A lot of bands felt that they were just kind of uh, trend chasing at this point. Well, I mean, if they were trend chasing, they would have brought out a friggin' turntable. What was this? Two thousand and five? Four. Was new metal still happening? Two thousand four. Like it was dying down. A well, okay, like Lincoln Park was still in uh, in full swing, and they're. I mean, I actually, yeah. I think by that time they had gotten rid of the turntable. They didn't really use the turntable very often. But I'm but. I'm trying to think. Two thousand four would have been my first year in college. And this was like the start of like Muse and stuff like that was really starting to hit the uh, the airways a lot on uh, adult yeah, but this radio. Billy Talent was big then. Thornley was big then. I was thinking there's a couple of songs that like felt a little butt rockish, but in a like yeah. if it was much better. Like it's still like it's still good. Oh yeah. But it still felt like it was that was the scene they were trying to like blend into. Well, that's the thing with the Tea Party is they could take a very plain Jane genre like butt rock, and just for people who know, we're not saying all this music sounds like ass. <laughs> it's 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 a play on radio stations where we what's it called? Um, everything but. Everything I, I can't remember the expression goes. It's not everything but rock because all they play is rock. Yeah. But yeah, it, it, it comes from that expression. It's very radio rock, if you will. Yeah. yeah I can remember it. I'm having a brain fart. It's very accessible. It's not the, not technically that challenging. The lyrics are usually pretty safe. It's not like they're they're not diving through the chambers yeah. of the heart to try to like pull something really i mean but that's again the, 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 the that's that style of music but the tea party still put their tea party stamp on it to make it better but it's just not it's a you know it's like that gob album i uh, this is this is a solid album but doesn't feel like a tea party album i kind of felt it was like two halves because the first half of the album is that real blues-based butt rock sound, like you were talking about. Yeah. And then the second half, they get more into the Middle Eastern traditional Tea Party Yeah, I noticed vibes. that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I felt that the pre- precursor is kind of a precursor to the stuff you hear on Canadian radio nowadays, where it is, it, yeah, it's, it's, it's radio rock, but it's a lot better. I, I kind of 
It reminded me of like Monster Truck or the Glorious Sons. Sure. Kind of the big Canadian bands Sheep that you're hearing dogs. nowadays. Sheepdogs, exactly. The Sheepdogs are a little more stripped down yeah. than this, but still. Uh, the singles were the best tracks for me on this album. Yeah. Uh, but I also liked Overload and Coming Back Again. Thought those yeah, were those were good. I always I chuckled on this when they had a song called The Watcher. There's nothing wrong with the song. It's just in film school, our friend Glenn West always had a, like, every semester we would get a chance before we worked on our big projects, we'd get to make some shorts just for fun. Okay. And yeah. Glenn, Glenn has been pitching this film called The Watcher uh, since, like, first year. And so by the time we got to third year... There was people who were like, uh, we we were all like busy with our projects, and so we're like, we're gonna we gotta work on this one film. And I'm like, Glenn, now's your chance, pitch the watcher again. And everyone's like laughing, and I felt bad because I roasted him because for some reason he brought his fiance to class that day. I don't know. She was just Awkward. sitting in, yeah, she was sitting in the class with us. And so everyone's laughing. And I would like one of the guys next to me was said it would have been funny if that roast just like made her like slip off the the ring finger. It's like, "Here you go, Glenn." Well, speaking of the watcher, do you remember that movie? That you Keanu and me Reeves went to go movie? see Keanu Reeves where he's the the villain and he's like barely in it or has any lines in it and James Spader and I think Marissa Tomei was the other person in it. Mm-hmm. I'll never forget that movie. Because you and I were going to go see it. We made plans to see it. I get a call from Brandon and Campbell who are like, Ted, we have an extra ticket to ECW at the Hershey (laughs) Center. It's the only time they've ever been in Canada. You can come. We're coming to pick you up now. I'm like, gonna go see the watcher with brian <laughs> forget that do you know this will never come back again this is once in a lifetime you have to go and i'm like oh, brian and my dad's like dad brian's here i'm like brian's already here They're like you fucking idiot <laughs> this is it it's never gonna happen again don't you want to go I'm like yeah i want to go but i made plans with brian i hung up the phone <laughs> okay and then we watched that fucking piece of shit movie it stinks. I think I'm more mad, but my loyalty to you as a friend. Okay. It'd be I missed w- a piece of professional wrestling history to see The Watcher. Okay, first I'm loyal of all, to you. First of all, nerd. Uh, <laughs> I'm pretty sure. Didn't the ECW come back? No. Oh, really? No, it was the only time they ever did Canada. Because they were, they were just, you know, northeastern, regionally based. Right. And then they did, you know, I think that was like September of 2000. They did the Hershey Center show, and then they were out of business by January. Oh. Wow. Okay. The other thing, if these idiots weren't so fly-by-night with their plans, if they had call, if you had called me at, like, 3 in the afternoon and said, and like, if we were going to a 7 show, oh, I got the, these tickets to wrestling, it's the last minute, would you be out? I might huff and puff about it, but I'm like, well, we could see it next weekend, or we could see it Sunday or something. I, I would have understood. But it, yeah. it's not my fault that these idiots can't get their shit together and called you, like, literally as I'm coming to the door. Yeah. Uh, apparently, they, yeah, they, they invited somebody else when they made their plans, and uh, he flaked on them at the last second. And, uh, Was it Nathan Barry? That's a Nathan Barry. Sean Morrison. Movie. Oh. I wonder if that guy's still alive. I hope so. <laughs> I don't like it when people die. Okay. That's... For our age, it's sad. I think he's still alive. He's come to mind games all the time. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, but that was also like 10 years ago. <laughs> all gonna... If it's after high school, that's a section of my life. And then during high school. So what happened after high school? It just happened. 
High school is four years. And we've been out of high school for like nearly 20. It's how my memory works. I've said that to you before. I'd be like, hey, Brian, remember the other day when we did this? You're like, it was four years ago. (laughs) All right. Where were we here? Oh. So, uh, I'm trying to find the name of the album again. Seven Circles. That's it. Yeah. That would unfortunately mark the temporary end of the Tea Party. We talked about turmoil going on in the band and how Jeff Martin wanted to spread his wings. And he did exactly that. He left the group in October of that year to pursue a solo career. Um, and realizing that Martin's vocals were basically an integral part of their sound, uh, as good as musicians as they are, Chatwood and Burroughs decided to disband the band as well. Now, during their hiatus, Chatwood would continue to compose music for video games. Burroughs would work as a DJ at CKUE in Windsor, the rock station down there. And he'd also join the all-star band's Big Dirty Band with Getty Lee and Alex Lifeson of Rush, Ian Thornley of Big Rack, Adam Gontier of Three Days Grace, and Care Failure of Die Mannequin. Never heard of this uh, all-star group. But he was their drummer. Um, And then Burroughs would also play in Crash Karma. Do you remember them? Yeah. Yeah, that had Edwin from I, Mother Earth, Mike Turner of Our Lady Peace, and Amir Epstein of Zygote on bass. Uh, And they found that. They had pretty good success. I've actually got their album somewhere here in the house. Uh, A radio station I work for was giving away a ton of albums. I got to cherry pick, and Crash Karma was in there. So I haven't listened to it, but I haven't. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Their song Awake reached number five on the charts. Play a little bit of that there for you, Brian. There you go. Uh, Martin, on the other hand, he would move to Ireland following the band's breakup. He released a solo album called Exile and the Kingdom in 2006, and it got pretty good reviews, but it didn't make any sort of impact commercially anywhere in the world, unfortunately. I wonder why he moved to Ireland. Did he marry an Irish girl? I don't know. You know, like I, 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 He wanted to spread his wings. You know, They got the big Middle Eastern base. They're big in Australia. You're starting to run out of continents here. Okay? <laughs> Go to Europe now. That's the next place you need to conquer. Um, and then while in Ireland, he formed a band called The Armada, uh, whom he'd released two albums with. And then in 2010, he moved to Australia, where they found their most success. He formed the Jeff Martin 777. They'd only released one album called The Ground Cries Out, but it did make it to number 51 of the Canadian charts. So did all right for itself. That ain't not bad. I said, that ain't not bad. That ain't not too bad. All right, (laughs) I'm going to do Professor... uh, Farnsworth? Farnsworth. Good news, everyone! (laughs) In April of 2011, the Tea Party Party announced they were reforming to play several shows, including Bayfest in Sarnia. They'd headlined their own tour that summer, and by December, Martin confirmed to a house in Montreal that the tea party was back for good and there would be no more breakups for which they received a raucous applause from that crowd now 
It was during this time, and we kind of alluded to it last week with our tease for this episode, that the Tea Party would make international headlines. The right-wing political movement known as the Tea Party, they tried to purchase the band's domain name, teaparty.com. Some believe the band would have made well over $1 million had they caved in and sold it to the political group. But their views clashed with the Tea Party's views, so they were considering selling it just to keep it out of the hands of the political group. Uh, But the band reformed. Maybe they inspired to keep it out of the (laughs) Tea Party's hands. And they continue to own the domain to this very day. And, uh, Brian, I think we kind of ripped off uh, the Tea Party's uh, website because they have a big banner on the website that says, No politics, just rock and roll. All right, well... I claim innocence because I haven't had I haven't been jonesing to go on the Tea Party's website ever. No disrespect, it's just. <laughs> it's yeah, how often do you go on a band's website, regardless? That's true. Yeah. Usually, if it's I'm just ever like Instagram or social media that you. Yeah, if I'm ever wondering, yeah. are they touring? I'll usually go on one of those like uh, Ticketmaster or um, Ticketfly or whatever. That one of those websites is. A, there's a yeah. calendar that just has like all the bands coming around my neighborhood. Or Toronto. So that's that's where I got my f- info. Yeah. And with the internationally, now everyone knew who they were. Uh, they would release their first new album in a decade on September 8th, 2014. The Ocean at the End. It was released through Anthem Entertainment. They were off EMI for the first time in their careers. And uh, the, even Anthem Entertainment did a good job promoting them. They'd get to number 17 on the Canadian charts and number 18 in Australia. The Australians, just like the Canadians, were very happy to have the Tea Party back. The album would produce two singles, The Ocean at the End, which didn't chart. chart that would make it to number 38 on the rock charts what'd you think of uh, the ocean at the end i really like this because i kind of i didn't know what to expect because normally like we talk about this all the time so many times by the this stage in the career after so many albums like 20 years as a band sometimes they really start to lose it but this one i was so surprised with the the 60s and 70s influences were much more upfront but the it wasn't buried under like heavy industrial i felt like it was more upfront like because you really felt the guitars and everything like that um and it was just, uh, it was. A, I found it a really fun album. It really is, and you can tell they're having fun. Yeah, which is really, really, really important. Um, probably more fun than you can tell they were having on any other album. Yeah, the other ones is like before he sings "Temptation." It's like, is he putting cigarettes out on his arm, or is here he's just like, <laughs> he's like having a grand old time, kicking a beach but I, ball. I think when you cultivate an image to yourself, like they did, which is very dark. Yeah. Um, 
that doesn't the fun doesn't come across on it because it's so intricate. You know yeah. what I mean? It's 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 very like I'm sure they had fun when they recorded these songs. Yeah. But it's very business like. Here they just sound like friends playing music, which yeah, is they're having and a playing, laugh, pushing each other in the bushes. Exactly. Music that they love and music that's very tea party ish. Yeah. I know you mentioned um, the seventies and sixties influences. I got a real eighties vibe to some of the songs they mm. did before. Yeah. Uh, I really like the Maker, Brazil, and Cass Corridor. I was about to say Cass Corridors. I I did not expect that. This is like some like kick out the blues kind of like rock thing. Is yeah. It was, it was, it was fun. awesome. Uh, a good hidden gem. We get a lot of these with the later releases from bands. We're yeah. kind of out of the main stream. Uh, some great shit can come out. And this but is even like to keep the one thing, to, the LOC was really good. It's another good kickoff track. It was, it was fun. So Oh, yeah. 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 They kept they, that they streak keep, alive. They're, they're churning it out. And they're, they're still making music routinely. They put out an EP in 2019 called the Black River EP. Uh, featured the single Way Way Down, which charted at number 35, but also Black River made it all the way to number five on the rock chart. So not only are they back, they're back making hits. Yeah. And this was very a bluesy-based yeah. rock album. This is very indicative of what's on the radio right now, which yeah. is like we talked about the Greta Van Fleets of the world, you know what I mean, where it is blues-influenced, but... Hey, they can do something that everyone else is doing and even make it better because they're that good yeah. as musicians. Um, finally, the Tea Party would spend the pandemic releasing cover songs. And he talked about Joy Division's Isolation, which was put out in April of 2020. You're a big fan of Joy Division. What did you think of their cover? I loved it because I I don't think there's too many singers in the in the world right now that can handle Ian Curtis's baritone, but Jeff Martin can. I was, I was thinking to myself yeah. this morning before we recorded, I was dropping a pre-show toosie and... Uh, Thank you for that information. Hey, hey, you're the one that ended a the our one show on the on Whatchamac on April Wine. Like, I got a shit. We bought that to shit. <laughs> yeah, but you were the one that was so blunt and crass about it. <laughs> anyway, True. and I cleaned it up by calling it a toozy. <laughs> okay, fair. Uh, but anyway, so I was going to the washroom, and I was thinking about like if if uh, he ever wanted to, he should connect with Joy Divi- or the New Order and say if you ever wanted to do a tour, you know, like you know what that that numb nuts did with Queen. Yeah, do this with Joy Division because a it'd be much quicker. It's like they only have like twenty songs, but uh, he could handle it if they only because you know Peter Hook when he does his like Peter Hook in the light. They always do pepper in Joy Division stuff, but it'd be interesting to see just the three of them because he can handle that baritone. That'd be a he fun could. tour. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting thought. Uh, but yeah, never short work story out, long. I those never it. work out, though. Those, those like, let's get a new lead singer. Yeah. You know? No, but I'm not saying to do it as, like, let's start putting out music as Joy Division. This is just, like, a one-off. It's, like, literally just Peter Hook, Bernard Sumner, the, the drummer guy who I always forget, and Jeff Martin. Uh just to, just to them playing only Joy Division and then they get the hell out. They're not going to start busting into New Order. It's like, no, you get your okay. our Joy Division songs and just like as a fun tour. And that's it. But like, I'm not saying to try to put out new music like what that uh, that guy did with Queen. But that's the other thing. A baritone is one thing. Like Je- Jeff Martin can handle the nice baritone. This numbnuts trying to imitate Freddie Mercury. I keep forgetting his oh, you, name. You're talking about um, Adam oh, Lambert. God. Adam Lambert, that's it. Yeah. Freddie Adam Mercury Lambert, was though, completely different. Has the has the range to cover Freddie Mercury. He does have excellent range. 
he's not operatically trained, no. Freddie Mercury. And that's where issues fall. But look, 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 like, you know, in excess, got that J.D. Fortune guy to confront them for a while. And they, Terrence Trent Darby fronted them once at a show. <laughs> um, uh, like, I love that it, one song he did. Wishing Well is a great song, but is, is it in excess? You know? Um, no, not that know, song. You know, Ramirez always gets shat on for uh, fronting uh, Sublime. Which is, it's funny, because now that Bud's You know they make there. shirts now? Uh, no, no, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's just what, you know they make shirts now at concerts that say, uh, like, well, like, independently sold in the parking lot, but they'll be like, Sublime with Rome is not sublime. What a bunch of dorks. <laughs> Hey, when we saw them, I, people weren't aware that Brad Nola died. I had to tell them, no, it's a different band, man. That's why it sounds different. The guy's dead. It happened. Okay? When we saw them, it was 2012. What are these people, idiots? <laughs> Brad died in like 96 or 97. <sighs> it happens. Like, these it people happens. are morons. This guy I was telling it to, he was hammered, but he looked older than me. <sighs> oh. oh, my God. Remember anyway. how Dalal always used to tease us, how we used to say sublime? He's like, what is it, underlines? What are oh, you guys, God. idiots? Ron Tufts embarrassed me in front of the whole class. We had to do our music profile. And I'm like, he's like, he wants, he wanted everyone to say who they were going to do. And he's like, hey, Ted, what are you going to do? And I'm like, sublime. And he's like, who the fuck is that? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, you know what I got, Santeria? And he's like, you mean sublime? And I'm like, that's what he said. He's like, oh, <laughs> and someone's like, I'm like, I think I know how the band's names pronounced. They're my favorite band. And everyone's like, yeah, you should know how they're pronounced. They're your favorite band. Oh, everyone jumped on me that day because I said subline. <laughs> Beneath Citrus. That's what we'll call them. Yeah, so Adam always said, is it underlines? <laughs> yeah, he got it from me. Anyway. Uh, they would also, in uh, 2020, put out a cover of Morrissey's Every Day is Like Sunday. And uh, earlier this year, what Stuart Chatwood would call the Tea Party's happiest song to date, Sunshine, was released. I it was called so Summertime. Had... Yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote down Sunshine. God, this is... I hope this is nobody's first episode of Canada FM because I'm going to sound so unprofessional on this one. Good lord, it's been a, it's been an episode. Okay, we're at the end of the rope. Yep. Here's my theory on why I don't think the Tea Party caught on in the U.S. Okay. I think that American radio stations, MTV, and all that shit, they couldn't figure out how to market. I think they were too arty for the mainstream, but too mainstream for, like, the arty circles. That's why, like, Pitchfork never caught on with the Tea Party or anything like that. I think... But see, that's weird, because I've, I've sometimes I'll Google random bands to see if actually Pitchfork, co- Pitchfork covered them. But, yeah. like, Pitchfork covered Sloan, uh, yeah. and they're they're pretty mainstream. Yeah. Uh, there's a bunch of Hot Hot Heat albums that got reviewed. Ooh, in pitchforks, good, good band for us to cover. Um, and then obviously there's the arty ones like your uh, metrics, your stars, and your uh, uh, Arcade Fire. I tell you one thing, they really are not kind of stars. All their albums get very mediocre reviews on Pitchfork. Uh, remember what they said about Sloan? They're like, uh, they're ten out of ten at being a seven out of ten. 
I just want to go down to those offices and start slapping people around. (laughs) We shit on the Junos, but really, fuck Pitchfork Media. They suck. All right. Here's the other thing I was going to say. I think had they maybe leaned into their dark vibes more, they could have latched on with that real goth audience at the time. Yeah. But at the Tea Party, they're a Canadian band. The Canadian bands refuse to compromise. We're uniquely original. We're control freaks. I say we like I have a band. I don't. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? They had their vision, regardless of what everyone thought. And they've got legions of fans oh, yeah. in Canada and in Australia. I'm sure they're doing. I'm sure they're very happy being oh, yeah. together now. Yeah. And yeah, that I mean that, that's well said because I because I'm trying to think of other heavier dark goth bands of that era just because it's so that was not my scene. But I'm trying to see like yeah. who they could have kind of like toured with or been like you know what I mean who could have kind of they could have ridden their coattails. But uh, I mean, Deftones is always the first one that comes yeah. to mind. I'm sure if Brent's listening to this in a couple of days when it comes out, he's probably screaming like, "Hey, idiots! There's like this, this, and this." Maybe oh, Monster Magnet. Monster Magnet. What about? I love Monster Magnet. Space Lord's an awesome song. I mean, maybe for that one brief moment while Monster Magnet was a thing, sure they could have like the, opened the for Monster them. Monster Magnet or... had a, a following. What Mitch Hedberg's got a Monster Magnet joke. Really? <laughs> yeah, he's like, "I want to go see his band, Monster Magnet." lead singer got on stage and he said, how many of you people feel like a human being tonight? And I said, yay. And they said, and how many of you people feel like an animal tonight? And the whole audience went, yay. And I said, damn it, man. You should have told me this was going to be multiple choice. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I mean, I don't know, maybe the pumpkins, because they kind of flew. That would have been. So good. Yeah, that would have been a great pumpkins tour. Pumpkins and Tea and Party. Tea Party. That would have been awesome. They may have done Somersault together. The Our Lady Peace. Maybe. Somersault. I feel like the Tea Party was a part of that. And the pumpkins were there too. But uh, that was just a Molson Park and Barry kind of thing. Yeah. Right? It yeah. wasn't one of the, like, yeah, I think if they could have found another kind of darker band that would have suited them, they could have lashed together and been touring mates. Like I think they, uh, especially imagine in, uh, 95, like the pumpkins putting out melancholy and the, uh, edge of twilight. That would have been right there. You know what I mean? Yeah. If fucking U S with their head of their asses. (laughs) If you like this album that's selling like gangbusters, like this album from Canada. Yeah. They don't do that. They don't give a shit. <sighs> oh, well. Oh, well. Hey, but, they're, they're, we've, we've got all the songs. We know how good they are. Yeah. There. Sometimes it just goes like that. They know how good they are in Australia. Yeah. So. All right. Well, any more thoughts on the Tea Party? Not on the Tea Party, but I'm curious. How is... Is ska really big in Australia? Like, I know there's a few bands like Friends of Rum and stuff like that. Well, Just they're punk. Friends of Rum, they're not ska. I thought they had... Or no, so I was thinking of someone else. There's a, there's a band called the Porkers, I remember, they're Australian, they were ska. Mm. It's just because when you factor people. a country that's literally surrounded all beach, because it's surrounded by ocean, yeah. they, should, they should be more the, open to ska. There are some Australian ska bands. I think there's like the Melbourne Ska Orchestra or something like that. Mm. There are some. Yeah. Next time I, when I go down at Christmas, I mean, New Zealand, it's close enough. I'll ask uh, Sharn if there's any ska bands from 
that continent. I'm sure if you said to someone New Zealand is it's like that's like saying Canada from or, that continent. If someone said to me, "Is there any North American bands I should get into?" I'd list a bunch of American groups. Okay, it's different. I think New Zealanders have like a sense of their own culture over Australia. They do, they do, but you know, New Zealand's also covered in beach, so. Well, it's like okay, it's like if someone said, uh, "What's going on with Mexico?" It's like ah, it's, it's North America. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I see your point. Um, oh, I do have a regret. One time, I remember being at just one. Thirsty, You're lucky. Uh, I got some regrets. <laughs> but after this episode, I remember being at the Thirsty Cactus with um, Brent and Riyadh. This was when Riyadh was like our DD, and he was really nervous. He kept thinking <laughs> someone was going to try to steal his car and stuff like that. And he was like, "Just one beer, guys, right? Just one beer, huh? Hey, you're not going to get too drunk and puke in my car. Just one beer." <laughs> <laughs> and there's another table full of people. They were way older than us because we had like just turned 19. Right. And uh, they were like drinking and kind of arguing. And the one girl turned to our table and said, hey, what do you guys think of the tea party? And I, she went, don't they suck? And I went, yeah. <laughs> and then everyone started laughing. This guy told you they suck. And I'm like, shit, I should have gotten that guy's back. I should be like, God, they're fucking awesome. They're brilliant musicians. Jeff Burroughs is the second greatest Canadian drummer of all time. Go fuck yourselves. <laughs> I didn't do that because I was a dumb 19-year-old, and I just went with the majority rule. So what? I did, did you think that girl was going to give you a friggin' blowy if you sided with her? No, at the time, I just wasn't really feeling the tea party. I wasn't really listening to them that much. Yeah, that's so, fair. Yeah, yeah. And also... That's me in my life. I've never been one to, you know what? I go against the grain personally. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I was the only guy listening to ska or, you know, watching baseball in a hockey town, you know, that kind of thing. But I'd have my own rhythm that would go against the grain, but I also wouldn't, like, vocally go against the grain, like, call somebody out and stuff like that. I was very agreeable. I've always been like that. Anyway, Freddie's fussing. I gotta go see him. Um, next week going to be the start of a two-parter and the start of the season finale of Canada FM where we do part one of the Swollen Members. The first five, because I think it's ten albums that they have. Something like so that. We'll do, we'll do albums one to five next week and then five to nine, the follow, five to ten, the fall, nine, ugh, six to ten the following week. Can't do anything today. Somebody knows a thing or two about Swollen Members. <laughs> your, your zipper story. Oh. Well, hey, you know what? We'll kick off with that next week. <laughs> a little teaser there. All right. Follow us on the Instagram and the Twitter. You saw the gob uh, retweet it. Oh, they didn't retweet it. They liked it. Come no on, one retweet. ever retweets. Uh, no one shares. <laughs> no, no one shares. Uh, they liked our tweet about our episode last week. And uh, follow us on Instagram. Brian's higher hard at work putting up some pretty cool videos. And, um, yeah, give us a five-star review on Apple Music as we are. <laughs> That'll do it. Yeah. We'll see you next week with the members. And uh, yeah, enjoy.